Welcome to Boozyology. I'm Caroline J. Miller. Theology. My name is Ryan Miller, and this is a part of the Denver Pub Theology community, where every week we get together at a local craft brewery. We brew up some hopalicious content, theological, philosophical, sociological, economic, political, and always relevant. So tonight, uh, we are going to talk about all things transgender, but before we do that, I'm going to introduce you to some of my friends, or they will introduce themselves to you. My name is Ryan Miller, and tonight I'm drinking the Calipigian which is a 17 percenter, and it's a bold drink. It's an imperial stout, and I just found out that it means, um, well, nice ass. That's what it means. I'm just going to, that's the technical wording for it. So uh, I actually, I grew up Southern Baptist, so I apologize for that. Evangelical, and about 18 years ago, I quit being Baptist, mostly because of the women in, you know, ministry issue, and after that, I was in moderate evangelical churches for the most part, and now I would consider myself to have a large, loving tent, uh, have an influence of Anabaptist, Methodist, Jewish, Pentecostal. So I'm an evolving Anabaptist, Methodist, Jewcostal follower of Jesus. That's my story. <laughs> my name's Craig Brook, and I'm drinking what Ryan's drinking, and I can't remember the name of it. Calipigian. All I can remember is nice ass. So yeah. <laughs> um, that's what it means. So I'm drinking that too. Thanks, Ryan, for sharing that with me. Um, I was raised in a Christian Reformed church and went to Calvin Seminary and am now an ordained pastor, still in the Christian Reformed church, served a church in New Jersey, and now here in Denver, Colorado. So my name's Liz, and I was an enthusiastic Sunday school goer, an enthusiastic youth group participator, bell choir attendee, um, devout Christian until I was about 17, and then um, gave that all up rather rapidly um, and was an atheist for a long time. And I'm still an atheist, but uh, atheism wasn't spiritual enough for me. So I'm, I would consider myself a Buddhist and uh, have a lot of friends that are Christians and otherwise and uh, love talking about religion. So, My name is Stephanie Madison, and I am drinking tequila. Yeah. Oh, yeah, good. Um, I'm drinking I, coconut water, yeah, by the way. Yeah. I um, grew up in the Southern Baptist Church, um, but got married in um, a non-denominational um, church. I am a physician in palliative medicine, and uh, after being in medicine and in you know the biology science world, I've kind of found myself drifting more to the liberal um, side of uh, theology, and I really don't have a definition of what I am now. I'm Megan. Um, I am enjoying a Stella Artois cider um, for all the gluten-free listeners out there. Um, <laughs> I was raised in an evangelical family, um, very devoted, loved learning about the religion and everything, um, but when I was about... 13, I started exper uh, experimenting more with reading about religions and kind of became a closet atheist. And then um, I, after that, converted to Mormonism, very dedicated, served a mission, went to a church school, um, and until recently have uh, decided to separate myself from the LDS church. Now I am just learning, um, exploring what spirituality is, and I love to learn. Awesome. Well, tonight we have a special guest. Paula Williams is with us tonight, 
And Paula has an incredible story. We heard her story last week at Wits End Brewing Company, and we'd love for our listeners to hear a little bit more about that. So Paula, uh, for 35 years, you worked for a large church planning ministry in New York. Uh, You were chairman and CEO for most of that time. You served weekly as a columnist and an editor-at-large for um, a Christian Standard, a leadership magazine. You were also a teaching pastor for two megachurches, and those responsibilities ended one day. So, Paula, who are you? What are you drinking tonight? We're going to talk about all things, but we want to get to know Paula. So I'm drinking iced tea because that's my drink, and I drink it all the time. (laughs) And Ryan made it, and it's strong, but I like it strong. So I'm very pleased. Um, And everything you said about me is, in fact, true. But I did a lot of other things, too, in the attempt to run away from myself. So I also was um, chairman of the board of a uh, quasi-religious television network and an on-air host for that network. I was a seminary professor at two seminaries in the United States and one in Europe. Um, I also was a part of a company that operated homes for the mentally retarded in uh, two different states and pretty much a renaissance person from the beginning. So let me start off with the primer that you gave us and then we'll talk more about your heritage and move from there. So you state, and I quote, that the evangelical world does not seem to know what to do with transgender individuals. We are only 0.03% of the population, so your chances of running into one of us are relatively slim. Add to that the issue that the Bible says absolutely nothing about the subject, and you leave people without a reference point in a gender binary culture. So let's talk about your evangelical heritage, because many of us here have come from that heritage. I grew up in the Independent Christian Churches, Churches of Christ, which is actually not an official denomination, but it looks and quacks like a duck, so I think we'll call it one. It's about 6,000 churches nationwide. The, um, the denomination is very strong in church planting and strong in megachurches. And since it has no hierarchy, it just kind of, leadership just kind of bubbles up to the top, and there are probably 25 or 50 leaders at any given time in the denomination. I was pretty definitely one of those leaders. Um, So when I came out, the day I came out, there were 65,000 page views on my website and a lot of really angry people. It's um, every now and then I'll read one of the letters that I got that day or emails I got that day and one's just particularly caustic and people say, wow, who would write something like that? It's like, yeah, that, that one was written by the president of a Christian university. Um, So not only were they dealing with the difficulty of me transitioning, but they were dealing with the difficulty of me being someone they had trusted for a very long time who they suddenly decided was a person without character. Hmm. So you've known these people for 35 years, decades of experience, friendships. Talk about that, that transition just emotionally, spiritually. What happened to you when all of your friends left you? And who didn't leave you? Well, of the probably six to 10,000 people I knew by name um, in the evangelical world, I've been contacted in a nice way by, I think we're up to about 55 or so. Um, I have met, um, that number shifted too recently. I think I've met 12 and it's now four. I've met more than once. Hmm. 
in the non-evangelical world, I lost no friends at all. I'm also a pastoral counselor and have a um, psychotherapy practice. I lost no clients. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, so we're going to have different people ask you questions throughout the night, and you can raise your hand and not, but Liz is, ne Liz is next. So. No, I was just curious. So in, in the evangelical world, who what, was there a defining feature for the folks that that showed up again in your life post-transition, or was it just sort of random? It was rather random. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right, so at any point now, anybody can ask a question. In fact, let's let's make this conversational. So, Paula, you can ask us questions, too. Yeah. Uh, the, some of the listeners might not know, but every week we actually do hash these questions out. So you gave us some pretty solid content. Some of this content was new for some people, and for others it was it was not new. It was a part of their world. Uh, but here, all of us have come from uh, come a variety of different uh, faith traditions, and so yeah, I mean, from our faith tradition, we can say probably is not a dominant conversation, considering you said 0.03 percent of the population. Well, what's happened is virtually nobody knew anything about it until recently, and I think that's primarily because of marriage equality. When you take a look at any culture, you have tribes. Um, we are a tribal people. And tribes tend to create enemies where none exist. And in their power structures within tribes, they tend to create scapegoats and drive them out so those in power can remain in power. So the church, you'd like to think, is maybe a little different, but it's not. It behaves pretty much like most human tribes. And it's one of the last ones to adapt. But it does adapt. So if you take a look at uh, Galileo, for instance, spent most of the end of his life in how, under house arrest because he believed that the earth revolved around the sun. Um, pretty sure there's no denomination left that believes that. Okay. You had slavery being widely accepted in the evangelical world and most every evangelical denomination splitting over it in the United States. But you'd be hard-pressed to find a evangelical church that would support slavery today. Yeah, the same thing happened in the evangelical world with divorce and remarriage or with transracial families, issues that were big deals even 30 years ago that are not today. But if you take a look at slavery, for instance, it was a painful 100 years. If you take a look at marriage equality, it was 20. Those who are fearful and tend to gravitate toward tribes that are fearful, 20 years is a drop in the bucket. Mm -hmm. A tiny period of time. So all of a sudden, the Supreme Court makes a decision. They're stuck, so what's the next battlefield? Ah, we'll choose the T side of the issue. Now, interestingly, among megachurches in America, which is churches that average over uh, 2,000 weekend services, in a survey that was done about three years ago, 50% of those churches supported and had transgender people in them. Nobody really had much of a difficulty. Today, among those churches, about half of them no longer will allow trans people hmm. into their midst. It was not a social issue. It was this tiny segment of the population that really didn't raise much of a ruckus. And now, all of a sudden, it's front page. It's news. So now you have pretty much all the churches that uh, are rejecting LGB people also rejecting T and Q people. So let's talk about just the basics here, because, I mean, you've stated here that nobody knows the causation. Mm -hmm. It's a small percentage of the population. 
But there's something that's interesting that I, I didn't know before, and you'd say it here, that uh, something about the first trimester and then the third trimester. Mm -hmm. So can you explain that? Well, the body develops in the first trimester. The brain's connection to the body parts doesn't develop until the end of the second, beginning of the third trimester. And studies that have been done let us know with relative certainty that something goes wrong in the second trimester, so that the brain does not develop an appropriate connection to the body parts that have already developed. Everybody starts out as a female, and then half of us get an androgen wash and end up as males. But um, in rare circumstances, more than likely, um, environmentally caused, the connections are not made. So like we know, for instance, that DES is a drug that was given to women who, uh, in danger of uh, miscarriages between the 30s and the 70s. So unfortunately, um, there's a, for mothers who took DES, their, um, their sons had a, a 30 times greater chance of being trans than the population at large. So they don't know exactly what happened, but they know something happened, and uh, it wasn't ideal. I say that honestly because I don't think there's any trans person who would choose to be trans. So um, one of the things in which you've said is that there's no cure. And last week at the brewery, somebody tried to carefully ask you a question respectfully. It was, in a, you know, he did a pretty good job. And you could have been snarky, but you weren't. And so when it comes to this cure about the mind and the body and the body and the mind, the question was asked, well, why can't you just make the other shift? Like, you know, yeah, the body is one way. The mind is this way. Make the mind then shift to where the body is. And then you said... It would be wonderful if it worked. A lot of us, I would say the majority of us, went through years and years of psychotherapy. Behavioral, cognitive, psychodynamic, family system. I mean, just, you know, you can pick your, your uh, approach to therapy. None of them have worked. It was really good for me that my therapist taught at NYU, psychodynamic, really Freudian-based originally did psychoanalysis before uh, it was out of vogue, although it still has its pockets in New York City. Um, but she did not believe it was a legitimate diagnosis, nor did I. And that actually was helpful, because um, I desperately wanted to get rid of it, and she thought she could help me. And we got to the point that um, she said, you are as, uh, use Jungian language, you're as individuated as any client I've had or family systems language, you're as differentiated as any client I've had, and yet this one thing remains, and it's not better, it's worse. We need to find somebody who specializes in it. It was also fascinating because her son was a physician, and she spent lots of time um, studying with him and with a psychiatrist and several neurologists, and over the years they began to realize this is a brain issue. Um, it is not connected to how you were parented, uh, it is not connected to uh, um, mothers treating you uh, effeminately or uh, fathers being absent. Um, all of those things have been proven pretty much to not be true. It's not genetic. Um, and it's, uh, like we said, its causation is not known. The time frame we do know. Yeah. Now on a, on a heavy note, this is, this is heavy, but we can be light, by the way, here, okay? <laughs> there is this uh, suicide attempt rate, and yeah. where there is a 41% rate here. 
And then you speak of this new study, a uh, Canadian study here, that found that transgender adolescents without supportive parents had a 57% suicide attempt rate compared to only the 4% of the parents who were supportive. Yeah. Let's let's get let's get theological. Let's get you know. Let's get religious. Let's talk to uh, just yeah to communities right here. You know, there's uh, the fundamentalist world and the Wall Street Journal. Interestingly, uh, grabbed onto the work of Paul McHugh, the psychiatrist who was at Johns Hopkins, and um, McHugh is uh, not very greatly respected within his field, but they've really uh, grabbed onto him because he shut down the gender transition program at Johns Hopkins years ago, and does not believe it's a legitimate diagnosis. And one of the things he has said recently is that um, you have, in one recent study, a 35% post-transition suicidal ideation rate, which is not attempts, it's serious consideration of suicide, and that is correct. But it's on a study that just came out in, I believe, 2013, but the study was done in 2003, so there's one thing. Um, cultural acceptance is far greater now than it was just 13 years ago. But once you dig into it, um, it's not about being unhappy in your new gender. It's about how you are received in your gender. So if you're a successful white American well-educated male who does not lose her job and you transition, your suicidal ideation rate is at about 1.4%. So you're talking about the same as the population at large. And is there a difference between male, female, to female, to male? Um, no. On that point, if you have acceptance, haven't lost family, haven't lost job, um, you're psychologically healthy, you don't have comor comorbidities, um, then, yeah, you're, you are no more likely to uh, consider suicide than anybody else. Which is the misconception, right, within a lot of religious circles? Well, the biggest indicator of suicidal ideation is uh, internalized transphobia. That's where you get that 57% number. Mm. So you get a developing adolescent who's uh, everyone in their world is saying, this is not okay, you're a freak. And well, now we're talking major suicide uh, possibilities, whereas with a supportive environment, not so. All of us, no matter how much we have our shit together who are trans, will internalize transphobia because there are plenty of people who hate us. So this, um, these statistics were shocking to me as a medical provider. Um, what could the medical community, community do better um, at um, having these discussions or um, having questions for um, people with gender dysphoria? You know, I would say that we've had in the medical community an amazing turnaround in just about five years. I... Uh, only transitioned recently, and I have had nothing but wonderful support from the medical community here in Colorado and in New York, where I spend part of my time. Um, that was not true necessarily 10 years ago. It may not be true in some pockets in the, of the country, but that's one of the professions in pretty much every area, whether you're talking about physicians or nurses uh, or other providers, where the acceptance has become strong. Uh, and that's marvelous. It's it's not a universal experience. I know trans women particularly who've had um, difficulty getting care. One of the bigger problems is getting um, insurance coverage. That's one of the bigger issues. Mm -hmm. um, Paula, I have a question for you. Um, you had mentioned last week at the pub 
that um, you, I think you said that you kind of knew that you were, well, probably, you probably didn't know you were trans, like in that, in that label, but um, you knew, I guess, something wasn't, something was different, something wasn't what people were telling you, you know, when you were a child. Um, what age was that exactly? I was about four, probably. Four years old. We moved from one house to another at four. Uh-huh. So I remember having the feelings in that first house. So that's how I know it was four or before. And I, like, what what were those feelings? Like, um, was it a a feeling of attraction or was it a feeling of something is different? Um, attraction is in sexual attraction. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah. I, I don't know very much about transgender yeah, issues. Yeah, sexual identity and gender identity are two oh. different things. Okay. So sexual identity is who you want to go to bed with. Uh-huh. Gender identity is who you want to go to bed as. Okay. So it really has nothing to do with one's sexual identity. Okay. Uh, for the most part. Um, for the most part. There's always exceptions that prove rules. In my case, in the typical magical thinking of a four-year-old, I thought I got to choose. I was very convinced I got to choose. I was an, a smart, entitled white boy. And so very early in that culture, um, we were pretty much told we were special and things were going to go our way. And so naturally I would get to choose. You know, you find Lana Wachowski, um, who uh, made the Matrix movie, she has a similar story of just being very convinced that she got to choose. It's very common for those of us who actually, I think, had male entitlement. You don't hear it mm-hmm. so much from the minority cultures. Interesting. Yeah. So talk about this, because for many years, I mean, Paul was successful in a patriarchal, male-dominated, evangelical church world. Paula, that's who you are now. It's who you've always been. What happened when you made the male-to-female transition, culturally speaking? Well, I became invisible. That would be for starters. As an older female, um, generally not identified as trans. It, it, um, I mean, I'm really tall. I'm only six foot two. But, you know, when you're walking through Disney World and nobody's paying attention, you realize that, you know, they got to spend some time with you usually before they figure it out. So it's not that I'm being treated um, as if I'm invisible because I'm trans. I'm being treated as if I'm invisible compared to my previous life, because I'm a female. I was at the American Airlines Club at LaGuardia a few weeks ago, and a guy came in who looked extraordinarily like Paul. And I just watched how they handled him. And it's like, oh, and he has no idea. He just has no idea that he's getting attention that others do not. And it's true. I mean, when you and I had a conversation probably two months ago, that was fascinating to me, because... Why would I? Why would I think that? I mean, I, I am a male, right? I'm. Uh, I want to. I don't want to say middle aged, but I guess I'm getting middle aged. I'm coming to grips with that. Educated, privileged, and have never thought about these things. Never thought about sexism. Fe- so feminism and unconscious bias was a conversation that we had two weeks ago, and it was not even on my radar. Like that's that's ridiculous. But why would it be? You know, even if you really want to know, you can't because you've never experienced anything else. It's a very small segment of the population that that knows. And it's actually troubling for both sides. It's troubling for females who become males and 
traveling for males become females. Mm -hmm. Both of them find that the adjustment culturally is uh, is difficult. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm going to change change approaches just a little. I'm just curious to hear about sort of how your faith journey was affected and how you relate to God now uh, and just what that process has been like for you. Yeah, I grew up um, in a religious world. Uh, the, there are three different denominations, Disciples of Christ, Church of Christ, and Independent Christian Churches that all come from what they call the Stone Campbell Movement. The stone part of that was my great-great-great-grandfather. So it, it's deep uh, in my roots. My father's a pastor. All my cousins are pastors or married pastors. So it was, uh, you know, rather divinely appointed, we were told, that we were to be pastors. Belief never came easy to me, primarily because of this. It's like, whoa, but now this seems a lot more a mistake of nature than something that God allowed it. If God allowed it, I'm not sure I like that God. And so I, I really struggled always, I think, with belief. And I think it's one of the reasons I worked so well in the Northeast and why church planting worked for me and why I had so many friends who were not Christians because I was comfortable in the conversation. I was as comfortable discussing uh, the possibilities that um, there is no God as I was discussing theology, um, you know, exegesis or hermeneutics of scripture. So it was, um, you know, it, it was, it came and went, my faith, my belief. Now it's um, by far the strongest it's ever been in my life. Now it's uh, powerful. I have no explanation for it. I don't need one. That was going to be my follow-up question, so... <laughs> yeah, it's just, there's, uh, you know, I felt called, and I said this uh, at the brewery, I felt called to transition, which anybody who knew Paul would be like, what? No, yeah, no, Paul didn't talk that way, and Paul did not talk that way. I was a left-brain Christian, um, much more comfortable with John Locke uh, than I would have been with... Uh, um, Richard Rorty or any postmodern philosopher. And so when I felt this strong call, I identified it as God and screamed and railed at him, her. Um, and then um, when I went back to church, it was a very similar feeling. I, that first week was like, damn it, who are you to bring me back to this when it treated me so shabbily? But it was a very strong sense of callback. And there are a lot of Sundays I'll sit in church and just start crying and I kind of can't stop. And I'm pretty well known at the church at this point and I preach a lot, so it's a little embarrassing because often there's just like no real. It's like, well, really? We were talking about maple trees and the colors <laughs> and she's up there out of control. But there's a very, very strong sense of uh, God's presence. My understanding of God would be, um, you know, I'm probably comfortable with uh, um, a, a lot of people who would not be identified as evangelical in the explanations of God. My, probably my favorite theologian would be Richard Rohr, and of course most evangelicals wouldn't even say he's a theologian. A lot of Peter Rollins stuff is intriguing to me. So, you know, to me it's, um, it's interesting taking a look at 
all of this, but do I feel loved by a divine presence? Uh, yeah, you bet I do. Um, so Paula, as you're, you were sharing that, uh, that thought, um, coming, coming from a, uh, a, not an evangelical Christian perspective, but rather, um, a different sect of Christianity, um, I remember studying and reading um, that gender was something that was divinely chosen and assigned to us before we came to this earth. Um, and there are many that believe that. And um, I guess my question for you is, do you think, do you think gender really matters in the eyes of, of deity? Is that something that really, um, from your person, having, you know, your education, your experience, do you feel that that's something that is is really, I guess, has a an effect on your relationship with, yeah, with my, dating? My faith rootedness never would have would have found its uh, line of thought through Calvin and Augustine and and Plato. Even uh, the idea of the demiurge who's causing everything to happen that happens. I always have had a view of God that's open, more of a God that's started things rolling and stands back and says, well, how about that? I didn't see that one coming. <laughs> um, so, you know, a lot, the only passage people use trying to talk against trans stuff is a Genesis 1, male and female, he created them. Well, you know, there's a lot of intersex folks out there with um, not clearly determined genitalia. And the medical community up until just the last decade generally would assign a gender based on outward appearance. They have gotten away from that, which is marvelous, that now they're more allowing the child to decide. So to say that there's only male and female, that's just uh, simply not a scientific fact. To say that God um, made you as a male or a female, well, you can follow that rabbit trail, and it goes a long way. God uh, put you in West Virginia when you were born, um, God caused your mother to, uh, uh, to have nausea and so need to yes. And, you know, it's, um, I have a hard time with that kind of God. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So 22 states are protecting transgender people. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to religious nonprofit, I don't know, is this just religious and nonprofit organizations? They have exceptions? In so, every single state. Yes. Okay. Yeah, because they wouldn't get the laws passed otherwise. All right. So all religious organizations can fire you uh, for any reason they damn well not have. Yeah. It doesn't, doesn't matter. Well, let's talk about the bathroom law, HB2 <laughs> right here. I mean, let's let's get to it. So, uh, I mean, the gender you have at birth, right, go to that bathroom or, you know, or what? Or, I mean, what's going to happen? So is this good? Is this bad? Is this, I mean, I know we, we could probably talk about this one at length, but uh, how has this law been effective? We don't know if it is or or it isn't yet, and how has it been, not just discriminatory, but how has it failed us as a human race society? I believe you have to look at the macro view on these things, and this is, in fact, typical tribal behavior. You know, did, did I talk last week about the E.O. Wilson stuff or the Rene Girard stuff? Girard? You and I did, but I don't think you did. You know, um, E.O. Wilson was a uh, sociobiologist at Harvard at, and at MIT, um, had two Pulitzer Prizes. And up until that time, the 
view was that the, the basic unit of humans was the nuclear family. He said it's not, it's the tribe. He identified nine species that he called eusocial species. That's spelled E-U-S-O-C-I-A-L. He said all nine of those species have what Richard Dawkins would call a selfish gene, but all nine of them have a second gene. That's what separates them from all others, and that second gene is a tribal gene, that they'll sacrifice themselves for the sake of the tribe. Most of them are insects, by the way. Um, one of those nine has evolved in such a way um, that's not healthy for the entire planet. Eight of them, as they've evolved, an enemy comes into the tribe, they gather together, they defeat the enemy, life goes on. The ninth species has somehow evolved to believe it needs an enemy for the tribe to survive. So where none exists, they will create one. And of course, that's us. And Wilson says we don't get a hold of that. We lose the species and we lose the planet because of the power we have to destroy the planet. Rene Girard is an anthropologist philosopher who just died last year who studied the internal workings of tribes and found that um, since the beginning of time, um, well, yeah, uh, over eons and since the beginning of recorded history, those who have power in tribes have been trying to figure out how to to maintain it. And they discovered the best way to keep their power in a tribe is to create an enemy within. So we have all these dangerous, illegal immigrants in the United States, so we've got to build a wall. Um, we have to drive them out because it's the only way we can maintain our power. So you have these people in power creating scapegoats. And interestingly, Gerard got in trouble with the world of sociology for this and anthropology. He said, if you take a look at all the meta-narratives, which are the big giant stories that explain the meaning of life, he said, if you take a look at all the meta-narratives, they're written primarily by males, written by the victors, always written by the winners, written by those in power, save one. He says there's one meta-narrative written from the perspective of the scapegoat. And he says, if we actually could follow that meta-narrative, not the religion that developed from it, because it behaves in typical tribal ways, but if we could follow that that scapegoat, we actually could change things. And of course, that scapegoat is Jesus, Nazareth. And so he's stuck with that right up until his end of days, as I understand it, with this uh, belief that this one meta narrative that says, love your enemies, you know, drives it all. So when I look at HB2, that's typical tribal behavior, okay. particularly tribal behavior in a Southern culture that is evangelical. Um, still in its control systems, and they lost something they thought was extremely important, which was the argument on LGB stuff with the Supreme Court decision, so they jumped to this one and created a problem that simply does not exist. The actual law is that you must use the restroom consistent with the gender that's on your birth certificate. There are, I believe, at last count, 15 states where you can have your birth certificate changed. So those people are okay. It's based on the premise that transgender people um, are going into the, those bathrooms because they are trying to um, um, use those as opportunities to abuse others. Um, and of course, this is based on incredible amounts of documentation uh, because there are, um, gee, how many exactly incidences do we have of this? Uh, convictions? No, not just convictions. Arrests for this? Um, anywhere in Western civilization? Um, none. Ever. Not one. So that's your 
very typical, creating uh, an enemy where none exists. If, I can't take it personally. I have to recognize this is what, this is what we did to African Americans 100 years ago. Well, even yeah. 75 years ago. And I just happened to be on the wrong side of the fence at this point. Yeah. I mean, I didn't have a good time with it. I took a picture of myself beside a <laughs> urinal in the Charlotte airport. And, and uh, yeah, I, I'm a blogger for the Huffington Post. So I put the picture up and it was, it got a lot of attention. <laughs> <laughs> that was fun. So, uh, I, I have a question. Just So... I, I'm probably the only person in the room that still represents sort of the evangelical tribe. Um, I still have evangelical in my title. <clears throat> All right. It's, it's in there somewhere. Post-evangelical, post, post that one. <laughs> um, and so I'm just curious, like, what, what would you want our tribe to hear? What's the most important thing? I think what I just said. Um, you just don't have a single exegetical leg to stand on to speak out against trans stuff. And the it's ludicrous when you look at their attempts scripturally. No, that's not so with LGB stuff. LGB stuff, I think that's a hermeneutical question, not an exegetical question. And if you're looking at a particular kind of fundamentalist or evangelical um, hermeneutic, then I think you can build probably an equal case both ways. On this one, you are creating a perspective on the silence of scripture. You have one passage, Deuteronomy 22.5, says you shouldn't wear the clothing of the opposite sex. If we're going to pick that one up, we have to pick up the other 612 Old Testament laws, too. So fortunately, most evangelicals are smart enough not to use that passage. Uh, they went back to the only one they think could make any sense, which is Genesis 1. But that one, too, it's like, okay, really? You know, that's just simply... Um, not so. Not only the 612, but you'd have to, what, stop Yves Saint Laurent from having trousers on women and tuxedo jackets in women's fashion and... Don't blend the fabric. I mean, look what I'm wearing. This is, you know, <laughs> men's you, clothes. And do you sow seeds, you yeah. know, different kinds of seeds in the field? That's, you know... Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I would, dungarees, work dungarees, right? I would like, say the evangelical world. Um, just hear our story. Story is what changes us. You know, we, we are story-based creatures. You can't um, sleep without dreaming, and we don't dream in mathematical equations. Well, mm -hmm. most of us don't. We dream in stories. And the, the need for story is biological. It's physiological. So story always is what changes hearts. And I've had an opportunity to speak in two very conservative Christian colleges. And I've taken those opportunities, even though I know I'm going to be skewered, uh, in those settings, because I can tell my story. And, you know, I was kind of surprised when I transitioned. I thought, well, people have one of two options. They either um, can have the cognitive dissonance cause them to say, oh, I must not understand trans stuff very well. I need to understand it, because Paul was certainly a person of character. Or they could say, oh my goodness, uh, after um, 40 years of working with them, we find out Paul was not a person of character little surprised by how many chose the latter. Just it, it was easier to do that than it was to deal with the cognitive dissonance that maybe they needed to re-examine the issue of gender dysphoria, which is the, the DSM-5 um, explanation or name for the condition. And I'd like to have faith that Christians really believe in 
you know, like, as you say, the scapegoat, the least among us, the whole message of Jesus, and you talk about a small group of the population who is in extreme danger, either from themselves or extreme, okay, that's a little extreme, but much higher than average incidence of receiving violence to themselves or receiving violence from other people. I mean, there's like a huge list of women, trans women of color who have been outright murdered every year. I mean, it's, these are, it's a very small group of people who is extremely vulnerable in society. So it's like, who's going to... Hispanic as well. Yes, trans, yes, uh, African-American and Hispanic. Yeah, that's who I was thinking. About equal, yeah. Yeah. So it's like, at what point do people have a Christianity where it's about the least among us? Not saying mm-hmm. that trans people are the least, but they're the most vulnerable. Yeah. And well, protecting the most vulnerable. If you take a look just, just yeah. at marriage equality, yeah. for instance, and you take a look at the raw numbers, um, first of all, if you take a look at LGBTQ people, 52% identify with their religion, 48% identify as Christian, which is up from 42% just six years ago. We are a religious segment of the population. If you take a look at the religious bodies, 83% of um, Jews in America are fully supportive of us. 62% of um, mainline Protestant denomination people are fully supportive. 61% of Catholics, but it's not a democracy. Uh, 51% of uh, black churches, 27% of evangelicals. But among uh, millennial evangelicals, 51%. I mean, this is a chapter that's already been closed. We're just waiting for the page to be turned. Are changing, and they already have. I think that's right. All right, so we've got a lot of people here with a lot of questions, but Paula, you may have questions for us. So what kind of questions do you have for this interreligious, evangelical, Buddhist, Christian, I don't know what I am group setting right here? So what on earth possessed you to contact me and have me speak? Well, I saw you at a mini conference about four, three, four months ago, and immediately I thought to myself, I need to meet this person. I emailed you the next day. And you emailed me back, which was pretty awesome. We had coffee, and I'm like, the world needs to hear your story. And if I have a little world in Denver, Denver pup theology that maybe can extend beyond that, then that's great. But if it's only within our community here in Denver, then that's fine, too. I, I wasn't a part of the planning. So, you know, I, I was invited to the same conference, wasn't able to go. But um, I was just really grateful to hear your story last week and a little bit more tonight um, because I think, like you said, um, in our denomination in particular, uh, we don't have categories that fit uh, your story. And so, you know, I'm just, I'm just fascinated and really feel privileged to have the opportunity to sit in the same room as you and just listen. So... And I understand the lack of categories, and I think if you're a trans person and you've done your work, you have no problem admitting that it's weird. And it's particularly difficult for people. Everybody has to transition with you. And it's not easy for them. I was, uh, shortly after transitioning, invited to a meeting with um, the head of a film production company who said, you really effed with me, and I said, well, get in line. And, um, and then he said something that, he said, you're my only example of an alpha male who was gentle. And it was like, oh, shit. Okay, you got me on that one. Mm-hmm. And I said, what do I do with that now? And I didn't realize to how many people I was a father figure. So you, you first of all, it's just weird, period, because most of us are happy in the gender in which we're born. 
And then when you have someone who's well-known and who's seen as this alpha male, which I definitely was, who's gentle, well, that makes it even more weird. So there's a lot of room. Um, only thing that actually gets us over that is just to meet people. What did you learn last week that you didn't know before that to you was an aha moment? Um, one thing that I, I once you had said it this evening, I also remember I, that you said it last week, but about um, the difference between um, sexual identity and gender identity. And I think that's something that is so, it's kind of <laughs> ubiquitously confused, confusing to a lot of people, um, or they don't even consider it. And quite honestly, I, I don't know, I guess, yeah, once you say it, it, it makes sense, but that's one thing that I guess I'm not very used to thinking that there's a difference. Um, and then when you talk about it, I'm like, well, of course, yeah, okay, that, that makes sense. But I think for many people that might, that's, it's probably a whole new, <laughs> a new window opened up to mm -hmm. their, their, uh, their way to perceive all of this. So, I, and I think that's important. Also, that's like a short thing to remember. That's important. There is a sexual identity correlation to mm -hmm. gender identity issues. Um, the vast majority of female to male identified as lesbian before transitioning. I won't say all, but it's a very, very heavy majority. With male to female, only 30% identified before transition as homosexual. Most of those very young, most of those uh, transitioned very early, um, were extremely effeminate, a lot of work was done on it by a professor at Northwestern who got in a lot of trouble for the way he talked about it. But there were some aspects of it that um, bear further study that there are maybe two groups of male to female uh, transgender people. There's one group that is attracted in, um, to straight males and identifies very early in life extremely strongly as transgender and very effeminate. And there's another group that knows it early, but it, it grows with the passage of time. And in that group, the vast majority are attracted to women. Mm -hmm. You'll find a lot of people in the trans world don't want to talk about that because they so hate that, that particular professor. But um, the work that was done on that part of it is actually pretty good work. Mm -hmm. So I think we have to build on that, figure out what's going on there. So one of the things I learned last week um, was that I think of your transition as your own personal story, but how what I realize is how much it affected your family. Um, can you talk a little bit more about? Yeah, the family stuff's never okay. Mm -hmm. um, it's just not. And you underestimate the amount of difficulty it's going to be for your family. Uh, my son is a pastor of a, a progressive evangelical church in New York City, a large one that is um, um, open and affirming to the LGBTQ population, but he lost his dad. So for a couple of years, we didn't have much of a relationship and we'd been extremely close. And it's still hard. We work a lot together now, but you know, we were Mets season ticket holders for decades 
And I, I tell him, I said, I tried to get you ready for the disappointment, buddy. Um, <laughs> you know, that's why we didn't go to the Yankees when you were a little tiny thing. Um, but he still has, yeah, he still can't go to a ball game. It's just, it'll be a while before he gets there. It was the hardest for him and for my wife. And uh, those are just never okay. That's why I say to trans people, particularly of a certain age, if you can get through your life without this, um, if you can get through without being a statistic, uh, if you don't feel called to do this, uh, I can guarantee you, you are underestimating the impact it's going to have on your family. It's just never okay. And I'm going to follow up with one more thing. Um, I guess a three-part question. So the good, the bad, and the ugly. What would you say has been the most joyous thing that's happened? The most painful thing? Um, and then the thing that is really ugly that you would want other transgender people to know? Um, the joy is simply in just being yourself. There's not a day that I don't wake up and think, yep, this is me. This is who I am. You know, it's uh, within six weeks of going on hormones, there was this sense of a brain at peace with itself saying, thank you very much. We've been telling you this for a long time. So that's the joy. Um, preaching as me is a pretty crazy joy because I've never felt quite as alive as I do when I'm preaching. So to preach as Paula is amazing. Um, the absolute hardest thing is the end of my marriage. Um, we've been together 44 years. And people always have all these ideas. Well, you could do this, you could do this. And then you say, you know, it's 44 years. And then the conversation stops, as it should, because you have no advice for me. Um, who am I going to talk to? I mean, Al Gore? Uh, you know, who else has ended their marriage at, at 60 plus? So that's... Um, we're extremely close. My um, former wife is a psychotherapist. We actually still do therapy together, do marriage therapy together, uh, but we no longer live together, and it's um, incredibly painful. And and your last one was? Kind of the ugly, or what would you want other transgenders to know? We kind of... Um, yeah, the amount of rejection yeah. from your world will be far greater than you think regardless of what your world is. The exception is if you are a um, pretty successful white male and your non-church world is um, very well-educated people. So like my, my two best friends in Long Island are both physicians. And one of them I've worked out with every other day for 25 years. And he's like, wow, I, how could I have not seen that? I said, oh, I was good at hiding it. <laughs> But when I met him, he's like, oh, you're just more you than you've ever been you. Okay, well, let's, let's go on. And, and I still beat him at tennis, poor guy. Um, but, you know, th that, when you have those kinds of friends, it's easy. But then when you're dealing with uh, friends who don't have the education, who come from a different background, most of my family, extended family, fall into that category. Strong fundamentalists, and I lost all of those relationships. They, I don't have a relationship with my parents. Uh, or uh, all but one of my cousins. Um, yeah, stuff. Did that answer your question? Absolutely. Okay. Thank you. Um, so you, I mean, you you mentioned, you know, the people that are outside of, people that you know that are outside of kind of like a fundamentalist type 
idea and uh, way of thinking, sorry. Um, what about those that maybe don't have a community like that? Uh, maybe somebody that really um, grows, you know, has always been around those that are kind of seeing in a black and white view. Uh, maybe they, they don't really have anybody else that will accept them, at least of who they know of right then. Is there maybe some sort of, um, you know, something that you know of that you could at least uh, maybe think of as a way of support for people like that? It's one of the most at-risk populations in the United States. Mm. If you're in Denver, you have the Gender Identity Center of Colorado, which is actually one of the... If you're in Colorado, you're in much better shape than if you're in... Kentucky or um, or Ohio, there are certain states where the services are far better. Mm -hmm. But the uh, it's it's a you know if you have um, any opportunity to interact with a person like that, then be very very supportive and gentle. Mm -hmm. If you have a strong pull to it call to it, the Gay Christian Network can um, put you in situations where you actually have an opportunity to be supportive of, of uh, kids or trans who don't have supportive families. Awesome. Flag can do the same, parents and families of lesbians and gays. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that info. All right, so to kind of wrap this up, one of the takeaways for me when I first, before I met you, but when I heard you, I said, Ryan Miller needs to be an ally. I haven't lost much. I don't know what it means to lose. I need to be an ally with everybody until there is equality. So what does it mean for us to be allies? Specifically speak to, I guess, white men. Yeah, I've yeah. got no choice but to speak out. Uh, well, I mean, I could run and hide, but I was a well-known person and I think embedded in my identity or responsibilities. But um, I don't make the impact that... Um, allies do. And so when I speak, I would rather have an ally with me speaking. But possibly the biggest area where allies can help us is those who draw close to us can be the communicators because we get to the point where we just don't have the energy. I had a very sweet, nice mm -hmm. gentleman I knew in my previous life who contacted me and I wrote him and explained what's going on, and he, um, he had a bunch of questions, and um, well, I don't, I'm having a hard time with this, and what about this passage, and what about this passage, and almost at the same time, I had a, um, uh, a physician from Pittsburgh contact me, who we'd worked together because he was chairman of the board at a seminary where I taught, and he also had the same kinds of questions. It's been very easy communicating with him, with the other person, not so much. So with that other person, I actually had to say to him, um, I've got two really close allies who are willing to walk you through this. I can't be the one to walk you through this. I can walk my family through it and a handful of other people, but most of us need others that we can um, point people to because you just don't have the strength when people are coming after you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. well, thank you, Paula. Thank you for your bravery, your vulnerability, transparency, uh, talking to us both last week and right now. And if anybody wants to reach you, 
Is there any place where they can go? Mm -hmm. PaulaStoneWilliams.com. If you go to the About section, About Paula, uh, there'll be an email address there where you can contact me. Fantastic. Thank you. And thanks to Steph, Megan, Liz, and Craig for being in the His House. And again, this is a <laughs> Brew Theology podcast from the community at Denver Pub Theology. You can check us out every Thursday night. Look us up on Meetup, hashtag Denver Pub Theology. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Also, check out the new fun endeavor, Brew Theology, also on social media as well. Peace. Thank you.